commonality in all of the stories in this series is the decision point. The moment when a decision needs to be made, whether or not the person has all the information they think that they need. Whether it's the decision to stay or go in a relationship or place, or the decision on what medical treatment to pursue next, sometimes the hardest moment when we're sitting and suffering is when the ball is in our court and it's up to you what to do next. Our guest Kent's story is filled with these decision point moments. And it's something we can resonate with because we've all been in those spaces where the decision was up to us and we wish it wasn't. However, Kent makes it clear that in those moments, we aren't alone. You're listening to episode 142 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just want to thank you so much for this conversation that Kent and I are about to have. And we have never talked before, but we know that you have brought this moment together. And so we're excited for where you are going to take this and what you might do. And to that end, we want to release ourselves to you. We want to invite you to speak, guide our words, guide our questions, not just so that it's a good conversation, but so that you're glorified and honored through it. So we give ourselves to you and we thank you in advance. Most we pray in most holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Well, Ken, I am excited to talk to you because you came to me through Jerry Fu, who was a guest in my last season, and I really loved my conversation with him. And as I was sharing with you before we started recording, there's something really exciting when somebody recommends someone, because I know that it's not random. I know that they see something or they sense something that would be a good fit. And so I have no idea what our conversation is going to be, but I know it's going to be good. So I'm excited about that. Amen. And as we step into it, for those that are listening, what would you want them to know about who you are as we get into this conversation? Well, Paul, the main thing, you know, no matter what our walk in life or what we do or our profession, I'm a child of God. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I walk in his grace daily, and I depend on his strength and his mercy daily. God's word says, steadfast love of the Lord never fails. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. They were new when you and I got up this morning. Mm -hmm. And so it's just exciting to walk with God. It's not easy, and we'll get into some of those details. It's not easy, but it's not easy for anyone. But as his children, we recognize his strength, and we see his mercies at work in us and through us. And then even in the things that the world looks at and says, man, that's tough. That's just hard. That's what an unpleasant place to be. To be able to use what he's given us and even just being present in that space and giving him glory, the impact that that has on the lives of others. Mm-hmm. So I'm just very glad to be here with you today and be able to share some of those things. Yeah. And so you already noted, you know, there are times where things are hard. There are times when things are tough. And you know, as you know, I've been navigating this season focused on sitting and suffering. And so as you've been thinking about this conversation, what's God been bringing into your heart? He has been reminding me of all the times, some in the fairly distant past and some even in the present, mm-hmm. where in suffering, he's there. He's there. I believe it's Psalm 40, where David speaks of the Lord lifting him out of the miry clay. And I heard a podcast several years ago where someone was unpacking that passage. And it was someone who had rebelled from God for a long, long time. And they said, I ran across that passage and I realized the Holy Spirit showed me it wasn't God reaching down with this clean hand saying, here, take my hand. I'm going to pull you up out. Jesus himself got down into the pit and lifted him from beneath. 
that's where I live every day. He's just lifting us from beneath and he puts our feet back on solid ground and allows us to continue to walk with him and for his glory and continues to reveal himself to us as we do that. Yeah. This idea of God being with us in suffering is one that, I mean, it's been popping up in these conversations, but even in my life, there's been so many moments where in the midst of it, I was like, where are you, God? Right. And then afterwards, I was able to look back and say, okay, even if I don't understand where he was, I have a sense he was there or, oh, I can see that he was there. And there's this bridge then, right? Like from this theological understanding of, oh yeah, I'm supposed to believe that God's there to when we can actually fully believe it. Exactly. So what's that look like for you? Like when you think about your own life and those moments where you went from it just being Christianese, right. <laughs> God is with us. So like, no, actually, wow, God is with me in my suffering. When did you come to actually believe that internally? When I was very young, I was raised in a Christian home. And so I've been in church and I made a decision to follow the Lord Jesus as my savior as a young boy. You know, everything was sailing along as a kid. But at age 11, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes and we had no one in our family with diabetes. And so my parents were scared to death. I was scared to death. We had no idea what was going on. They made some decisions early on. I was an 11-year-old kid, mm -hmm. but they said, you know, as quickly as possible, we're going to learn all we can, and then we're going to hand this over to Kent and let him run with it. And you look back and you realize godly parents that were in tune with what God was telling them to do and the impact that that had on my life. Paul, I went ahead and, you know, kind of took it in stride. I mm -hmm. played sports. I played high school soccer and baseball. I went on camping trips, you know, spend the nights with my friends. I mean, no holds barred. I lived life as a kid with diabetes. And I knew I was a little different, but my friends didn't treat me that way. And again, I just kind of took it in stride. There was a moment when I was 16 that a classmate who had diabetes, her mom read everything that was in print about diabetes back then. And back then we had the internet. So if you read it, it was in print. Mm -hmm. And she called my mom. She goes, listen, they're starting a study. We lived in South Jersey. They're starting a nationwide study, but there's going to be a center over at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Will you go with us and kind of find out about it? It's for diabetes. We went and we heard the spiel and long story short, we decided to enroll in the study. I became a study volunteer. My friend decided not to. Mm -hmm. This ended up being the study, if some of your listeners are dialed into medical things at all, the Diabetes Control and Complication Trial ended up becoming the landmark trial for how to treat type 1 diabetes, mm -hmm. insulin-dependent diabetes that people usually get as kids. Well, probably 9 out of 10 people with diabetes have type 2 diabetes. But this study proved how diabetes should be treated and right away, the medical community said, wow, can we replicate this in type 2s? And they did. And so by the mid to late 90s, this became the gold standard for how to treat diabetes. Paul, I was in that study as a patient. Mm. And the reasons, thinking back, that we even decided to do it, I mean, they said it's going to be a 10-year study. Oh, and we'll provide 10 years of free medical care for your diabetes during that time. My parents are like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do this. <laughs> and it was no picnic. And I laugh now, knowing what I know about diabetes care as a pharmacist and a certified diabetes educator, to look back and I just shudder to think about what I was doing then that was so wrong <laughs> based on what we know now. But getting into the study, they said, okay, you're not going to be on one shot of insulin every day now. You're going to be on four. Four? You're going to start sticking your finger at least four times a day. We're going to measure every bite of food you put in your mouth. You're going to keep records of everything. You're going to come see us once a month in the clinic. We're going to draw blood and do all kinds of tests. And once a year, we'll have you spend the night in the hospital to do even more tests times 10 years. How's that sound? Mm. <laughs> and I'm 16. I'm going, uh, there are a lot of other things in my life more important than diabetes. But the point is I got into the study and I went ahead and just trudged on through. My friend didn't do it. That study, Paul, taught me how to take care of myself basically to keep my blood glucose in ranges that people that don't have diabetes keep theirs in. And the overwhelming finding in that study was that doing those things 
had a dramatic effect of preventing complications of diabetes, blindness, kidney failure, non-traumatic limb amputations due to neuropathies and that kind of thing. So I went ahead and enrolled and participated. Actually, I'm participating currently in an offshoot of that study. Mm -hmm. So I'm just a lifetime research participant, I guess. My friend who didn't do it, is blind today. Oh, wow. You know, and I just think about the impact of that one decision and how God just nudged my parents to say, yeah, let's do this. Like many people, especially who grow up in Christian homes, you kind of get curious about what's the other side look like. And I dabbled in some worldly things in college and then on in pharmacy school and was really just kind of living life for me. And the level of dissatisfaction that I faced was so huge. Mm-hmm. I wasn't pleased with my grades. I was passing, but I wasn't doing the work I knew I could do. My social life was miserable. I had a job that I hated. Everything was miserable. And I kind of hit this brick wall, if you will. And I took a walk one night, the end of my first semester, my third year of pharmacy school. It it was late. And I can take you to the place, the streetlight, where as I approached that streetlight, I just stood under it. And God said, okay, you've been doing it your way long enough. Are you ready to hand it over to me? And I said, out loud, the neighbors probably thought I was nuts. I said, yes, God, you take it. I'm yours now, Mm -hmm. finally. You know, even during those days, Paul, I was reading my Bible, I was attending church and so forth, and I'd run across a verse that was pretty compelling. James 1.8 says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought I'm pretty double-minded here, and I'm about to become a pharmacist, a healthcare professional. I can't afford to be unstable in any of my ways. And God's word says, I'm unstable in all of my ways. I said, okay, God, we need to change this. And he did. He so mercifully took over. A month later, I was on a clinical rotation. I met a young lady that in November will have been my wife for 29 years. We have three great kids. God is so good. Mm -hmm. If I had not reached that moment, if I had still been rebelling against God, when I met her, we would have passed like two ships in the night. Mm -hmm. But God's timing is so perfect. And he's just so merciful and wonderful. So we have enjoyed a marriage with, like I say, three great kids. They have no health issues, thankfully. They're smart. They're successful. Been very blessed in that regard. But God still had lessons he wanted to teach me and teach us through hardship. I cultivated a hobby in the year 2000. It was the year our second child was born. I enjoy motorcycles, Mm -hmm. love them. And I got a little bike and started riding around, you know, a little bit here and there and and not much. And I'm not one of these, you know, guys that joins the biker club and goes over seven states over three weeks. I'm not that guy, but I would ride locally pretty much any time I could and really loved it rode for 11 years in all kinds of weather and all kinds of roads and whatever. I just loved it. We were enjoying our time as parents. And you know this because you have children. You just kind of get a fresh perspective on God as father when you hold your child for the first time. And we had three. And so I understood, you know, that love and the sacrifice that it takes. You know, I've told our kids, I said, no matter what you do, you might affect our fellowship, (laughs) but nothing will ever disrupt our relationship. You'll always be my child. And to appreciate that as a Christian and to see God's love for us through that light was incredible. Mm. You know, we were enjoying life, but you know, I'm a pharmacist, I'm growing in my career and things are going really well. The kids are doing great. And then one morning, beautiful morning, kind of like today, I was riding to work on Interstate 40 westbound into Memphis. And for some reason, I still don't understand it. It defies the laws of physics. A pickup truck in the right-hand lane flipped over Mm. into the left-hand lane. It was upside down in the left-hand lane. There were about three cars between that truck and myself. All three of them slammed on their brakes. And even with that, we were doing interstate speed, you know, 60, 65. They started bumping into each other. If you've ever ridden motorcycles, you know, that can flick your wrist and get out of a bad place pretty quickly. But braking is not your strong suit. And on that morning, it was rush hour. There was no place to go mm-hmm. but to the grass. I just took the bike off the road, off to the left, into the grass median. And it was early enough in the morning that the grass was wet. And it was like hitting solid ice. The bike slipped out from under me, crushed my left leg, burned it pretty badly. Mm. Thankfully, it flipped, so I wasn't pinned under it. 
And when it flipped, I released and I was dressed for it. I had my helmet and my leather jacket and gloves and had a backpack on with my work stuff, long pants, you know, but I just tucked and rolled. And I said, God, <laughs> I'm in your hands. You got me. And as I rolled, there's about an eight foot patch of grass. And Paul, if I'd have been a few degrees to the right, I would have rolled back out into traffic. Mm. And my body's moving about 60 miles an hour. I'm rolling. If I'd have gone a few degrees to the left, you know, we don't have legitimate guardrails in that stretch of road. We've got these posts and cables. It would have been like a human shredder. Yeah. God saw to it that I stayed just right on this little eight foot patch of grass, ba-doop, 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 came to a stop, immediately crawled underneath the median because other cars, I'm still hearing crunching metal and breaking glass. And I crawled underneath that cable and went to the taller grass in the median and decided to take inventory. And I rolled over and I saw my left leg. Bones were protruding. Mm. The smoke was still coming off of it where the flesh had been burned. And I thought, okay, I don't need to look at that again. <laughs> we know what's going on there. What else do we have? Well, in the process of flipping, I'd lost my cell phone, but my insulin infusion pump, my lifeline was still attached. Mm. Thank you, Lord. And right away, God just started working. A guy jumped out of his car and asked for a phone number that he could call to get assistance and notify my wife. And we got that going. And in those moments, you know, some people go into shock. God's little shut off valve for traumatic incidents. In my case, I had this massive adrenaline surge. And that's kind of the other thing that can happen in those cases. And so even thinking back on it, it was 11 years ago, I saw and heard and felt everything in high definition. So it's still very clear. There were two men standing at the roadside. There was an African-American gentleman and a white gentleman, and they were standing next to one another about, I don't know, about 15 feet from me. And they were praying. They were praying over me. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. But they stopped and they prayed, and God's presence was there. My wife, who is not real good with blood, didn't arrive until the EMTs had already field dressed me and got me the ambulance. Then she came, mm -hmm. and I'm still alert. You know, everything's wrapped up. She said, oh, okay, he just broke his leg. No, no big deal. Well, my son was with her, my oldest son. He was 14 at the time. He saw things that she never saw, and he told me later. He said, Dad, I knew it was bad. But there I am in the ambulance. They were going to take me to the regional medical center downtown Memphis. So she goes, well, I'll go home and get you some clothes. After they cast your broken leg, we'll bring you home. That's what she was hoping would happen. That's not what happened at all. But we're in transit to the hospital. The EMT prayed with me, young guy, hadn't been working very long, but he loved the Lord. He says, man, you're hurting, aren't you? I said, yeah, I'm hurting. He goes, can I pray for you? I said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We got down to the hospital and they did a CT scan to see if there was any internal bleeding before taking me to surgery for my leg. And the tech in the CT lab says, man, you're hurting, aren't you? I said, yeah, I'm hurting. He goes, can I pray for you? Mm. <laughs> so he prayed over me. I'm taken to OR and I'm hearing the surgeons already use the A word. Mm. My toes on my left foot that I could see now because they'd taken everything off were kind of that purplish blackish look of skin that just wasn't getting blood flow. I couldn't feel my toes or move them anymore. And they were talking about removing it even then. And I was like, Lord, please, no. One of my favorite things, Paul, is playing soccer. Mm. I grew up, I'm naturally right-footed, but I had over the years developed my left foot to where I could dribble and pass and shoot as well with my left as I could with my right and really enjoy that element of the game. Yeah. And now here's my left leg in this condition. And it was just so overwhelming. We go into the operating room and there's a friend of mine. We graduated high school together. He's in medical sales, orthopedic medical sales. He covers several states and the hospitals and the major cities in each of those states. Well, he just so happened to be in Memphis that morning at the regional medical center in the operating room where I'm having my surgery. Mm. And to have him five feet away from my bedside, praying for me during that surgery. Of course, my wife, my parents, Sunday school teacher, a few other close friends, ministers from our church were in the waiting room praying. Mm -hmm. And God performed an absolute miracle. The surgeon called my wife midway through and said, I need to perform kind of a drastic measure to try and save your husband's leg. And that's when Amanda was first made aware of just how bad it was. She goes, do I have your permission? <laughs> she says, absolutely, do whatever you have to do. Well, she did it, and almost immediately... 
blood flow was restored mm. to my foot. And I came out of surgery, and the first thing I wanted to see was those toes. Are they still attached? <laughs> yeah. My goodness, they're pink. I can wiggle them. I took my right foot and kind of did one of these on my left foot. I can feel them. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Lord, thank you for saving my leg. And that was a huge moment. And we had well-meaning Christian friends tell us at that moment, Paul, they said, well, that's God's sign. He's going to save your leg. You're going to be okay. And we had to be very careful with that. Mm-hmm. You know, that sounds great. But reflecting back on it, it was really God's sign that he had this whole situation right here. And he just gave that to me. So we got into the process, and the surgeons do what they do best. They try to figure out ways to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That leg was in horrible shape. Mm. But the surgeon mapped out for me what they would have to do. They'd have to remove some muscle tissue from my back to replace lost fascia. They'd have to replace lost blood vessels, so they'd remove blood vessel from my right leg and put it in my left leg. I'd lost about four inches of bone, Mm. so significant bone grafting would have to occur. And then skin grafting, you know, to cover it all up. He said, you're probably looking at five to six surgical procedures between now. The wreck occurred in April. Between now and January, and as you heal from one, we'll do the next. Well, I know because I have diabetes, I don't heal rapidly from things. And so I'm, in my mind, protracting that out at least several months further. I said, okay, well, if everything goes according to plan, best case scenario, when do I get back into action? He goes, well, we'll have you walking by January. It's nine months. Mm. He says, now you might have a brace, you might have a limp, but we'll have you walking. You know, we had these three kids, and I love soccer. I was coaching them. They love soccer. We play soccer. We go to the beach and throw frisbee. We shoot hoop in the driveway. We go water skiing. I mean, Doc, when can I get back to doing those things? And I'm so thankful for his transparency. He just looked at me and shook his head. He said, probably not. Hmm. Wow. So God was all over it. He gave us the wisdom to start asking some very deliberate questions, some questions we never thought we would ask. But he also brought people into our lives that had some knowledge that we didn't have. I didn't know anyone who had a prosthetic limb at that point. I certainly didn't know anyone who made prosthetic limbs who could give us any guidance about those from a professional perspective. But there we were in that moment. And the other thing that was so incredible, Paul, is that the body of Christ did what the body of Christ does best while we were in that space. People surrounded, literally surrounded our family and moved in. They were taking care of our kids. They were providing food. They were helping Amanda figure out insurance claims and who needs to get what information and what all pieces we needed and questions to ask the hospital. I mean, every base was covered by our brothers and sisters in Christ. I have two younger brothers in my family, and they both came in. They live out of town. They came in, dropped everything, and they were helping our family out. And just the presence of people represented in a very tangible way for us the presence of God. And my wife came to me. She said, I've got a unique situation. People are calling and asking what I can do. And I'm running out of things to tell them because everything's being done. Mm -hmm. I said, well, baby, here's what we tell them to do. We tell them to pray because I have a decision to make. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a life-changing decision either way. And we need wisdom. Mm -hmm. You know, James 1.5 says, if you lack wisdom, that's me. You know, let a man ask of God and he will give to him liberally without reproach. So I knew that God was able to grant us wisdom. But I just said, let people pray. We've got to make a life-changing decision very quickly. And I asked the doctor, I said, how long do I have to think this over? He said, well, I need to know in about three days mm-hmm. whether or not we're going to proceed. And in that three-day time span, Paul, God brought people into our lives. I met a man named Skip Martin. Skip is an amputee. He's also a prosthetist. And he came in and introduced himself, and he hopped on his prosthetic leg across the room, and he jumped up and down and did all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. I said, that's pretty impressive. How bad does that hurt you? He goes, not at all. I said, really? Tell me more. (laughs) Well, one of my younger brothers would come in and they kind of did rotating duty, spending the night with me in the hospital. But he and I stayed up most of the night, one of those nights, just doing internet research on what people are capable of doing with prosthetic limbs. And there are people doing all kinds of incredible things. High school football players, alpine skiers, mountain climbers, you name it. If they're properly equipped, they're doing whatever they want to do without limits. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. 
and I'd had some conversations. Skip had given me some names and numbers of people that were in the same situation I was. Each of those people had decided to have their limbs surgically restored. And after 20 years post-surgery, they elected to have their limbs amputated. He said, ask these people their stories. I called about six of them, and each of them said the same thing. They said, you know, the surgeon did the best they could, but my leg constantly hurt, regularly got infected. I was in and out of the hospital, and my quality of life was the pits. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's pretty compelling. I hear this six times. Well, at the midpoint, I went in. They were doing debridements and irrigations in that damaged tissue, and I was sitting in pre-op one morning, and they wheeled a guy in next to me, and his leg is up in traction, and he's moaning in pain. I thought, well, Lord, I'm not doing very well, but maybe I can brighten his day a bit. So I rolled over. I said, hey, man, what's your name? He goes, I'm Richard. I said, Richard, what happened? Motorcycle wreck. Hmm. <laughs> he says, my bike went off the road and crushed my femur against a tree. Mm. I had rods put in, antibiotic beads, the whole thing. He says, but ever since then, it's constantly hurt. It regularly gets infected. I'm in and out of the hospital. I have no quality of life. There's a theme here. I said, Richard, how long ago was your wreck? He goes, oh, it was two years ago. Two years ago, and you're still in this shape? I was like, man. And I remember that moment, Paul, rolling over, and I looked up, and I thought, okay, Lord, I'm not in very good shape, but I need guidance here. And I don't think I like the answer that you're pointing me to, but if amputation is the answer, then, I mean, you're God. I, I accept that. And he confirmed that. In fact, my wife had been praying. We have another friend named Pat. Pat is in orthopedic sales, and he spent time not with me but with Amanda explaining to her and the people he had seen that had gone through these procedures. And he said, their lives are never the same. And, and Pat said, I know Ken, I know he wants to get back to an active lifestyle. He will not be satisfied no matter how good the surgeries go. He, he won't be satisfied with his quality of life. God provided Pat to speak in her ear. God provided these other voices to speak in my ear. She came in and spent the night with me the night before we had to tell the doctor. And she just looked at me. She goes, what, what are you thinking? What's God telling you to do? I said, without hesitation, I said, baby, God's telling me to have the leg removed. And she teared up. She goes, God's been telling me the same thing. Mm. We've learned over our marriage, Paul, you know, if I go to God with a sincere, humble heart and I ask him a question and she goes to God with a sincere, humble heart and ask him a question, even if we are in total disagreement when we first start to pray, God's going to give us the same answer and we can accept his answer and we can come back together and move forward. That was one of those key moments in our lives when he did that. Mm. And it was a huge decision. But in the aftermath of that, just what he did, you know, again, I'm diabetic. I don't heal real well from things, but I started going to physical therapy. And the first thing, the therapist, all of them had extensive background in wound care. They said, let's see your sutures. How are you healing? Oh, okay, here you go. And they say, that's incredible. That's healing so fast. I said, no, nah, you're just saying that. Said, no, 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 really. We see these all the time. You're healing incredibly well. Now let's get you up and walking. I started walking and I had a benevolent drill sergeant. Ellen was the best physical therapist. She taught me to walk again and jog again. I did stairs and treadmills and long hallways back and forth and back and forth. And she would just look and make sure she goes, okay, we want to make sure that you are perfectly balanced because we don't want you to start walking on a prosthetic limb and you know, you're accommodating one side or the other because that's going to have long-term impact on your flexibility and your ability to function. Mm -hmm. So she made sure that I could walk and I could walk correctly. Six months after the surgery, I'm doing follow-ups with my surgeon. And he said, okay, this is about the time that we need to start on antidepressants. You're a pharmacist. Tell me, what would you want? I'll write it for you. And I took a deep breath and I looked at him. I said, Dr. Perez, I don't want to go down that path. I don't want antidepressants. He goes, oh, you do realize that post-amputation, well over 95% of patients experience some level of depression. He says, I'm offering you an opportunity to start on something now that, you know, maybe you're not feeling it yet, but we want to get out in front of it. When that time comes that you're covered and you don't land in a deep depression, I said, doc, thank you, but no, thank you. Paul, I never faced depression ever. God was there in a huge way. And it's so amazing. You know, Dr. Perez had told me, he goes, we'll have you walking in nine months if we do the surgeries. 
I took my first steps on a prosthetic limb 27 days after my surgery. Hmm. And then Skip called me into the clinic. It was about the three-month mark. He said, listen, there's a local news crew that's going to come in. I've done some work for one of the network execs' daughters who was born without her legs, and I've been building prosthetics for her for a long time. And he just wanted to bring a news crew in and do a piece on me. He said, but would you be here? He says, by the way, I have a surprise for you. I said, what's that? He goes, well, I built a special temporary prosthesis. My leg was still the size of a small tree trunk, mm-hmm. but he said, I built a special temporary prosthesis for you that I've triple reinforced. You can run on it. You want to try running? I was like, yeah, I want to try running. And there's a story behind that too. I have two younger brothers. My middle brother, when he was in town during the hospitalization, before he left, he wanted to challenge me. He says, listen, running a marathon has always been on my bucket list. I just never had the impetus to do it. He goes, now I do. So I tell you what, we're going to give you 2011 to rehab, but in December of 2012, I'm going to come back to town. And, you know, we've got the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in downtown Memphis, and they have the marathon weekend, first weekend of December every year. He said, December 2012, I'm coming back to Memphis. We're going to run the St. Jude Marathon together. Mm. And I, I was selling my IV meds at that point. I was like, yeah, sign me up. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. It was serious. So I had that in my mind as something that we had to do, and I had to get back, right? So Skip says, hey, I've got this leg. You can start running on it. So here I am, I'm at his clinic and there's a TV news crew and they're interviewing him, but he says, come in, I want you to meet Kent. I put this leg on and they followed me outside to the sidewalk in the street next to the building. Skip says, all right, take off. <laughs> and I took off running on that leg and it was just like I was being set free. Oh, wow. uh, I can run. This is amazing. The news crew thought it was pretty compelling. They actually did a couple of follow-up stories for the local news, but I was back. I was running. And in that year, 2012, in fact, the anniversary of my wreck, April the 28th, being a pharmacist and then a diabetes educator, I'm very connected to the diabetes community. And I was on the American Diabetes Association Leadership Committee for the area. And they had this bike event and they asked me to be the honorary chairman of the bike event. So I got a chance to stand in front of several hundred participants with their bicycles before we rode and to share with them, say, this is the one-year anniversary of the wreck that claimed my leg. And here I am by God's grace, riding in this event with you guys. Mm. Let's go. Just a chance to give God glory, but a chance to participate in something that if I had gone the surgical route, I never would have dreamed I could have done. I coached my son's soccer team that fall, Mm. teenage son. I'm out there running up and down the field with the boys, playing scrimmages with the boys, scoring on the boys Mm. (laughs) with prosthetic leg. I went water skiing that summer. I mean, God was just giving me back each piece of the active lifestyle that I previously enjoyed. Not motorcycling. We negotiated that with my wife. She goes, you know, I really would prefer you not to to ride. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, baby. There are a lot of other things I can do that are fun. But sure enough, that December, Kurt, my brother, came to town, and he and I ran the St. Jude Marathon. His first ever. It was my second. I'd run in 2004 with a friend, Mm -hmm. but my first with a prosthetic limb. And just that comeback moment and the opportunity to be a part of that was so huge for my family, for friends, for people that knew us. In fact, we made a tradition then to continue running for St. Jude, and we participated every year. My dad, who was 70 at the time, said, you know, that's pretty neat. I want to run with you guys, but I don't want to do full marathons. Let's do halves. I'm like, all right, Dad, let's do halves. And so mm-hmm. my dad started running half marathons at age 70, and I think he did four or five of them in a row. My kids started running, and it's just kind of become a thing. In 2018, I was granted a very unique privilege. The people that run for St. Jude and do fundraising, they call them heroes, and we get a special shirt we can wear, the, the St. Jude heroes, and, you know, there are a few perks that kind of go along with that. Well, Every year, they give one of the heroes an award. It's called the Heroes Among Us Award. I'd heard about it, but thought, well, these are for people that raise big sums of money and and all that kind of thing. But I was called by a representative to share a few comments at the kickoff event for St. Jude in 2018. I had met one of their patients actually in 2014 at the end of the race. He was three years old. His name's Kale. 
Kale was born with a left leg that had serious cancer, and his mom knew as soon as he was born they were going to have to remove the leg. That was the only way to save his life. Mm -hmm. And I met this little guy. His mom brought him over at the end of the 2014 race, and he and I kind of got to know each other, and we took some pictures and just had a lot of fun, and we didn't think a whole lot about it. Well, St. Jude had one of the pictures that was taken, and they called me in 2018, and they wanted to talk about it. I said, well shared the story with them and shared my story, you know, and they said, would you mind just kind of encapsulating that and sharing it? At, and we're going to have a look at a little press conference and so forth at the kickoff. Well, what ended up happening, Paul, I showed up and I had the CEO of Allsack, the fundraising arm of St. Jude, Richard Shadiak, introduced me and I went up and spoke and was sharing my story in a more encapsulated version than I'm sharing with you now. But people were tearing up. Mm. I had this moment and I showed them my running leg and on my walking leg, among other things, I have Jesus is Lord in big red capital letters. Mm -hmm. Our former pastor, Dr. Adrian Rogers, used to say, if I had a microphone and I could speak to the entire population of the world and just say one thing, it'd be this, Jesus is Lord. Because that's the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, do you believe the truth or not? You know. So I had that on my leg and I'm showing that leg and I showed my running prosthesis, which is Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. That's my favorite part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They'll walk and not faint. And so I'm having this opportunity to share. But as I stepped up to speak, the St. Jude representative handed me a framed photograph. And it was that picture that had been taken with Kale back in 2014. As a connection to St. Jude, I said, you know, St. Jude does such a good job of making all of their events about the kids. And you look at billboards and TV ads and stuff you get in the mail, it's always about the kids. And they get the name and their condition, but they're smiling, mm -hmm. they're happy, but their bodies bear the marks of cancer. I said, so when people do what they do for St. Jude, they always do it with one of those faces in mind. I said, and here's the face I have in mind. I talked about meeting Kale and got done. And Mr. Shadiak came back up and he was wife in tears. And, and he says, well, that's an amazing story. He said, I want to present you with an award, which blew me away. He goes, but I'm not worthy to present it to you. Kale, come out here. Mm. And here it was four years later, he and his mom came out and he presented the award, just a special, special time. And all the local news outlets were all over it. So just so neat to be able to take what God had given us in hardship and to give it back to him yeah. and see what he does with it. A friend sent me a card when I was in the hospital, and it had this scripture, and I love this. They kind of meant it as a joke, but I've really embraced it. In Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11, it says, God does not delight in the strength of the horse, nor does he take pleasure in the legs of a man. <laughs> the Lord favors those who fear him and those who wait for his loving kindness. Just to see how God has used me, used my story. He's given me the privilege of going into hospital rooms, people that have had either traumatic accidents, injuries like I've had, or people with diabetes. Again, I'm very dialed into the diabetes community as a professional. And to be able to go in, people are either have lost or about to have a limb surgically removed because of poorly managed diabetes. Mm. To be able to come in and share my story, tell them, hey, life's going to be different, but it's not over. There's hope. And to point them to the Lord Jesus, it's just been such a privilege. I was invited by a friend to go and speak in the local jail in Memphis. He was saved in jail. I've never been to jail, but he said, I want you to go with me. And he's an older guy, but we go down and, you know, the guys hear his story and they think, well, he's legit. Mm -hmm. What about Kent? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said, well, I've never been in jail, but I've been through some stuff. And I lift my pant leg and I'm like, oh, wow. I said, let me just tell you, you know, God is good. Walking with God is not easy. It's a journey. It's tough. But in those moments, God is so there. He's always present. He always provides. And even up to the moment now, you know, as we sit here, I'm currently don't have full-time employment. I've got some part-time things that I'm doing professionally, seeking that next opportunity. But we're just in this space, you know, sitting and suffering. That's hard, you know. By God's grace, you know, Philippians 4.19, my God will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We're owning that scripture. We have not missed a bill payment. We haven't missed a meal. 
God is so good, even while we're waiting for what comes next. My wife, Amanda, is dealing with some serious physical situations. She was diagnosed about 15 years ago with rheumatoid arthritis mm. and Sjogren's syndrome, which if people aren't familiar with Sjogren, it's another autoimmune inflammatory condition that affects the tear ducts in the eyes, the salivary glands in the mouth, the skin, and then Lyme disease. Mm. So with that combination in her mid-50s, she has a very difficult time walking, moving. She's in pain all the time. It's just hard. Yeah. Her mom was the most independent 84-year-old you'd ever meet. Hard-working, mowed her own grass, kept a garden, kept a spotless house, cleaned the church across the street until this past December, she had a stroke. Mm. Completely paralyzed on her right side. Can't speak, can't walk. She had a second stroke in early September, so she's requiring care around the clock. It's a hard place to be. But God has shown himself so faithful, so gracious, and he just has been so present in these times. And we continue daily just to cry out to him and to beg for his mercy. And, and he's there. Mm-hmm. So we're not out of the woods. We're still sitting in suffering. Mm-hmm. But even here, just to know firsthand the presence of God, the peace that he gives that passes all understanding, when we choose not to carry it ourselves, but to hand it off to him, his promises are true and he's ever faithful. Yeah. Man, there's so much in your story and your stories, right, that we could just sit with and dig into even deeper. But one thing I really loved as I was listening is there's this common theme of the decision point, Mm. that moment when we're sitting in suffering where a decision is in front of us and God's not telling us what to do and we're getting mixed messages from others and it comes down to us to make a decision. You and your parents had to make a decision early on. Are we going to do this trial? And, you know, your friend and his parents had their ideas, their understanding of what was going on, and they probably had their own reasons for not choosing to do that. But y'all made the decision you made, and you could see the impact of that and the ramifications of not making that. You had that moment in pharmacy school where you're like, what am I going to do here? And you had to make a decision. And you had no idea that God wasn't thinking about your career as much in that moment as it was the partner that he was preparing for you. And this moment of, do I lose my leg for the rest of my life? Amputation in our mind is by default a bad thing and irredeemable thing. And you had to make a decision, right? And now... Now you're at a point where you're like, all right, what I thought my career looked like, what I thought my professional life looked like, isn't that anymore. And I've got to make a decision of what is ahead. And yeah. man, this moment of the decision point is such a hard one for us because we want God to give us the answer. We want the answer to be the right answer and the best answer. But what's so beautiful about your story is it really captures God's creativity that your understanding going into each of those things was very limited. Yes. And meanwhile, God's like, man, you have no idea what I could do. You're mapping out the best course of action with keeping your leg, but you have no idea that losing your leg is actually going to give you more. Absolutely. So my question for you is this, you know, there may be a lot of people listening who are at that decision point and they're trying to figure out how in the world do I discern (laughs) How in the world do I make a decision with confidence? And then what do I do after that? How do I keep my wits about me once I've made a decision that may not be clear that it was the right one? How does someone navigate that space? That's a great question, Paul. And I can only answer it from our experience. 
we intentionally surrounded ourselves with people that know and love the Lord, people that we respect. You know, Proverbs says, in the presence of many counselors, there's wisdom. Mm -hmm. So we surrounded ourselves with wise counselors. We sought as much information as we possibly could to make a good rational decision, but we knew that it was much more than that. And really what we did is we pressed into God's word. Yeah. You know, people say, I want God to speak to me. I want God to speak to me. He has. He's given you his word. Read it. Believe it. Trust it. And then pray it back to him. Say, God, you've made promises here, and, and I'm counting on you. I, I need you right now to be here in this situation. I need your wisdom. You're the God who promises wisdom, and I need that now. And he does. He does. And it's been so great for us as followers of Christ to see him perform on his promises. So spending time with other Christian people who are dialed into God's word, absolutely spending time in God's word yourself, but spending time in prayer and just lifting those things up to God and seeing how he answers those prayers. Mm -hmm. It's truly incredible. And it'll look different for each person in each circumstance, each decision, but his faithfulness will be consistent. Yeah. You know, the other thing I love about your story is it really captures the type of invitation that God is giving us. Like mm -hmm. early on in our faith, the invitation that we want God to give us is an invitation to a good, comfortable life where we have everything that we need. Our daily bread is covered and we are thriving, right? That's what we want. And yet sometimes God is inviting us to something bigger than us. Amen. Amen. So you would have had all your ideas of what you wanted your life to look like when you were a teenager and looking ahead, or when you started to think about going into pharmacy school, or when you, you know, these different moments in your life where you could forecast out. But I love that moment towards the end of your story where you share how God was using you, which was in a way that you could not have gotten to in all of your studying. You are able to walk into these rooms and be in the presence of somebody sitting in suffering because one, they're navigating diabetes and it's just tearing them up. Mm -hmm. And two, they're facing losing a limb and it seems like the worst possible thing. Right. And somebody could come in that room with intellectual knowledge and say, well, no, 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 no. Here's what you can do with diabetes. And, you know, it's not all bad. But you walk into the room with intellectual knowledge, with that pharmacy school experience, which you're also able to say, and also I have diabetes. So I get it. I get it on a deeper level than someone who does. I get it what you're saying. And also, let me pull up my pant leg for a second and show you. <laughs> I also get the fear of amputation and the wrestling through it. Like you're able to be in that space in a way that you couldn't have in your own setting and in your own humanity. And you talked about Jesus earlier doing the same thing for us. Amen. It wasn't just Jesus on high speaking down, hey, just trust me. It'll be fine. He came into the muck with us. That's right. When we are covered in mud, like, look at me, Jesus. He's like, well, look at me. Like, I'm right here with you, right? Amen. The hardest part about all of this, the hardest part of this invitation is, again, that we can't see it from our vantage point on the front end. Mm, that's right. There has to be this decision to trust. Exactly. And sometimes to trust into foolishness. But man, you talked about how God's already speaking to us. One thing his word says over and over and over is that God loves us, Amen. that he's with us, that he knows what he's doing. And so even in the foolishness, man, how God can work. Hmm. You know, let's say somebody's listening to this and they are in that heavy, heavy place of sitting and suffering, whether it is, you know, diabetes or they're risking some significant medical issue ahead or job loss, right? right? Let's say somebody's sitting in the space of suffering. If you could say something to them right now, what would you want to say? Paul, I'd want to tell them, especially if they know the Lord, I would say, look back on your life and see how faithful God has been to bring you to this point and realize that he hasn't brought you to this point to let you go. 
the investment that he put in you. You think about what God paid by putting his son on the cross. Of all the lavish gifts that have been given by kings and princes throughout history, pales in comparison to the price he paid for your soul and mine. And when you see God in that perspective, and and you look back on your life and you see where he's been faithful, he's not going to let you go now. Just trust. If they don't know the Lord, that's an entirely different conversation. I said, listen, all I can do is share my story. Here's where my strength comes from. But it doesn't come from reaching deep inside. It doesn't come from me at all. It comes from a loving Heavenly Father who made me for a purpose, and that purpose was not to fail. And you just look at how his word is so full of promises, and every one of them are true. But to get in on this, you have to be his child. <laughs> and so let's start there. But I would absolutely just point him to trust in God. And then the other thing, of course, you know, good decisions are made by good information. Seek out, if it's a medical decision, ask not one but several doctors. Get the opinions of people who have faced that decision in the past and gone down that. I'm so thankful that Skip had me call people that were his patients. You know, and he could have just told me his story and said, well, yeah, you know, you need to do this. He sells the stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he knew I needed to hear from some other people. So he gave me the numbers of, I think they're probably 10 phone numbers. I got a hold of about six of them. But every one of them said the same thing. He said, we have been where you are. We know what that's like. We've been on the other side of it, having had all the surgeries and all the rehab and all the rest. And this was what our life was like after that. And it was miserable. And after 20 years of living with that misery, at that point, opted for amputation. Well, the other thing about amputation is the longer you live with a traumatically injured body part, once it's amputated, the longer you live with it, the more likely you are to have phantom pain because these painful nerve impulses have been traveling up and down your nervous system. It's kind of like ruts in a dirt road, you know, and and so they were dealing with phantom pain. In my case, I had the amputation 10 days after the injury. And so I don't have phantom pain. So just the value of having that input from people who have been there and done that is huge. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that God's using you to communicate that info through conversations like these, through going and actually visiting with patients, through interacting with people. For years, God has been using you in this way, but I'm particularly excited about what God might have ahead for you Mm. to be in this space of walking alongside others. Because that's what we see so often in scripture is often the invitation is to walk alongside others through their things. Mm. And so I'm really excited for whatever God has ahead for you. If somebody wanted to connect with you or wanted to learn more about what you're navigating, what's the best way for them to do so? I'm happy to answer that question, Paul. And I would love for people to reach out to me by email. My email is kent8267 at gmail.com. And as we close out, you know, is there anything else that God's putting on your heart that you feel like you want to share before we go? I just want to echo what you shared about being brought to this point and just looking at, you know, what's God going to do next? This is a faith journey. You know, none of us have arrived. I think about what the Apostle Paul said about, you know, forgetting what was behind and eagerly reaching for what lies ahead and pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You and I are both there and we're walking different paths professionally. We live in different parts of the country and we're different ages, but we know the Lord and we know that he's got a plan for our lives at every phase. Mm -hmm. But at every phase, God is conforming us to the image of his son. He is forging Christ-likeness in us in many ways through our circumstances. And the Christian life isn't a bed of roses. We're here on this earth, and we face hardship just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. What sets us apart is what we do with that when we surrender it to God. It's not that we take it and run with it or anything. It's not about us. It's about Him. And the more we surrender and allow Him to work in and through us, the more He blesses our lives, the more His objectives are accomplished for us where we are becoming more like Christ, and He gets the glory. 
that's the perfect combination there, right? We're receiving his blessing, even just on a day-to-day basis, but he gets the glory. And in the process, we're becoming more like the Lord Jesus. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Jesus' existence was so compelling that everyone he encountered faced that decision point. Their life was one way, and he was inviting them to experience something different. But what Jesus encountered over and over and over was people making excuses rather than making the decision. In fact, that's the theme of the parable right before the passage I just read in Luke 14. In that, Jesus says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. In fact, we see this in other spaces when Jesus invites others to follow him and they give excuses like, let me go say goodbye to my family or I have to bury my father. And we've talked before about how difficult a portrayal of Jesus this is, particularly verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. It seems strict and cruel, but in reality, Jesus is trying to help us to understand actual reality. What Jesus knows that we fail to recognize is that all the things that we think matter pale in comparison to him. All the things that we think are of importance will eventually fade away. And by holding on to those, we actually reach nothing. But by giving up everything, we can not only follow him, but reach full life. And so it's in this counting the cost that we discover the mystery of navigating the decision point when we're in the midst of suffering. Jesus spells out what human logic says. Human logic says if you're going to build a tower, you want to make sure you have enough money because if you don't, people are going to ridicule you. Or if you're a king facing war, you want to make sure you have enough men. Otherwise, there's no way you can win. But Jesus wants us to understand where human logic is limited, God's ability is limitless. Because while man can't complete a tower without enough money, God invited a man to build an impossibly monstrous boat. And even though he was ridiculed, It led to the salvation of he, his family, and a whole bunch of animals. In countless times, God invited his people to face their enemy, though they were outnumbered. And not only did they survive, 
But the people didn't even have to strike the first blow because God defeated the enemy with the thunder. Kent gives an important invitation here. He makes it clear that information is valuable, and accessing that information can help you to discern more deeply. But at the end of the day, what helped him make his decisions was seeking God, was being willing to follow God, even if God invited him into foolishness. And what you've heard is that instead of ruin, Kent saw God's faithfulness. And you can too. God knows the frustration and pain you feel when you are at that decision point in the midst of suffering. And what he invites you to do is what Jesus invited of his disciples. Jesus said, look, regardless of your situation, count the cost. And the reality is, I will invite you to a cost that is too much. That's in fact everything. And yet, instead of losing everything, you will find utter victory. Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' reality, works far different than the way we understand it. After all, earlier in that chapter, Jesus says this, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Look, I know that sometimes in the midst of suffering, it can feel like God is asking too much. And maybe he actually is asking for everything. Because what God knows that we don't is what actually lies ahead, of what is actually important and what will fade away. And most importantly, how deeply he loves us. He is with you right now in your decision point. He is not going to abandon you. Question is, are you willing to abandon all else for the sake of him? Because ultimately, it's not a decision about whether to stay or go or what medical treatment to have, but a decision to choose to step towards God. And when you seek, you will find. So in the midst of your hard situation, as you're trying to decide what to do next, look for a glimpse of where God might be. Take a step towards him, and as the situation continues around you, ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means, It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com slash revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book.
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash where did you see God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?